Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today continues from Psalm 26, today verse 6. He who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. The first several verses of this chapter in Proverbs continue to warn us of the fool. Today, verse 6 warns us that to send a fool on an errand is only asking for trouble. Again, it reads, He who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own own feet and drinks violence. If we entrust our message to a fool, a person who is careless, who who is without regard, one who is so full of jest and so given to his own pleasures that he cannot apply his mind to anything that is serious, then we will find our intended message is totally misunderstood. Part of the message is likely forgotten, the rest is awkwardly delivered, and there are so many blunders made throughout that he might as well cut off his legs. In other words, never have sent him to deliver the message at all. It's a man's disgrace to make use of a fool's service, because others will likely judge a man by his messenger. Let's remind ourselves of what a fool is. In Psalms 14 it says, it's a person that does not fear God. Quote, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They they have done abominable works. Wisdom begins by fearing God, but a fool lacks this basic trait. Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. By rejecting the fear of God, a fool is thus subject to compromising, to dreaming, to lying, to sleeping, to talking, and excusing himself altogether. He hates listening, he hates obeying, and he hates working. He wants to do things his own way. Well, how does this apply to us today? We don't employ men as our couriers to literally take our spoken word or our parchment message to uh, hand it to them to hustle it over to the neighboring town and give it to our friend there. However, we do entrust our well-being to those, our own well-being and those of our household, to accountants, to lawyers, to contractors, to doctors, to schools, to churches, and even our politicians. We assign some measure of trust to each of these. Above all other factors, we should measure those that represent us by their character. And if you find a man or woman for any of these roles that truly fears the Lord and that bears the name of Christian well, then they ought to be among the top of your selection list. Allowing a fool to speak for you or to carry out your wishes must be avoided, but we must also avoid being a fool ourselves. In our, in our age, our messages don't rely on that courier, but instead we can convey messages ourselves in addition to the postal service, which can take our letter down the street to our neighbor. We have telephones, voicemail, FaceTime, email, text messages, IM chats, blogs, Instagram, Twitter, the list goes on. If we don't take care, our own messages will get easily mangled. And in short order, everybody and everything is off the rails and doing the wrong thing. 
Our discipline is to quickly identify the fool and know how and when to avoid them and when and how to call them to repentance. And in ourselves, we need to be quick to recognize our own foolishness in our sin and be ready to repent and ask for forgiveness. This reminds us of our own need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are, if you're willing and able. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have given us your word and you have revealed yourself to us in it. Lord, we pray that you would teach us through it, that you would rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if I asked you, who do you think your enemies are? Or who do you think God's enemies are? Um, what would you think or say? So who are who are the enemies? You know, would you say ISIS? You know, all the things that are going on over in the Middle East, and ISIS is a big problem over there, right? And the persecution of the Christians. Or would you just say Islam in general? That is one of our great enemies. Would you think the Supreme Court of the United States that has come up with these decisions over the past couple months and you know some of the things that are going on there, that be what you would target as an enemy? How about President Obama or Hillary Clinton? You know, the things that spew out of their mouths demonstrate that they may very well indeed be our enemies and the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. How about the homosexual agenda and all those involved with it? Or just politics and the government in general because of where it's going right now? Are those all the enemies of God? Well, if you said yes to, to those, you would indeed be right. You would be right in listing these as your enemies and the enemies of God. But the thing is, those are safe enemies. <laughs> those are safe enemies, aren't they? They're really theoretical enemies. You know, when, when it comes right down to it, because we can point the finger out there, and they're way over there in Washington or over there in the Middle East. They're theoretical en enemies. They're not breathing down our necks. Enemies that are out there. We know they they exist, but you know we've never really met one, <laughs> right? What does Jesus say about our enemies? <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew ten thirty six, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Right? And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's startling, isn't it? That's startling. That's a startling statement by Jesus. Brings things a little bit closer, doesn't it? Right? It's not theoretical when it's our members of our own household. 
say about this enemy that's really close to us. Well, here's him continuing. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. That he has come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow Jesus is not worthy of him. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find this is Jesus. That's called the hard saying of Scripture. <laughs> right? That's, that's tough stuff that Jesus is talking about here. But how do we know what God's and our enemies look like? Well, we go to God's Word. He's the one that defines those things. He defines the terms of who the enemies are. He defines all of those parameters. Because if we go to a man or our culture, we'll end up with weird definitions of who our enemies are. Because Peter's going to tell us who our enemies are, right? Peter will tell us our enemies are those who, you know, do anything to an animal. Right? Uh, food Nazis. They'll, they'll tell us who our enemy is. You know, it might be gluten or it might be, you know, whatever that's out there now. You know, whatever latest fad that's going on out there. They'll come up with all sorts of things and tell us what our enemies are. You know, if we look at the news and we look at like things like CNN or Fox or whatever, they'll all tell us what our enemies are. Are those God's definition of enemy, though? What God says, what Christ says, you know, Hollywood and Nashville, they will tell us, but God, as Christians, we, we are Christians, right? God needs to be the one who defines those parameters, because if we listen to our culture, we're going to get it wrong, and we're going to be siding with wrong-headedness, maybe siding with our enemy, and we're going to be wrong. Because if you have a culture that says if you do say anything about a person's sins, if you try and correct a person because you're defining their sins biblically, you are a hater. Right? You're a hater. That's the big word out there right now, right? Okay? You're a judger. But our culture is calling more and more evil good and good evil. It just is. That's that's where that's the place that we live in today, right? That's where we are. We are in opposition. Our culture is in opposition to the Word of God, and we can even find this sadly in our own house, right? And those who call themselves evangelical Christians, and we find them saying things that are in opposition to God's Word. You know, Rachel Held Evans just read an article not too long ago that she was saying that uh, we just need to embrace the homosexual agenda as Christians. And if we don't, I mean, we're just out in outer space or something. Okay, and she claims to be an evangelical Christian. 
in our psalm today, David is crying out to God for his protection against those who are false, against those who are God's enemies and thereby his enemies. He's crying out to God. But his enemies, you know, we often think, okay, here he's talking about his enemies and stuff, and we do, we apply like what we do, what we have in our situation. So we apply theoretical enemies today. We think like maybe his enemies are the Assyrians, right, or the Babylonians maybe, or, you know, the whatever. (laughs) Whatever camp is around David, right? And so we think that maybe it's them. But that's not who he's warring against, is he? Who is David warring against? Right? When David goes out and he's having problems and all of that, he's warring against Saul. And who is Saul? But his father-in-law, who wants to kill him. Right? Someone in his own household. A father-in-law against his son-in-law. A man in the covenant household who wants to kill David. That's a close enemy, isn't it? Another enemy of David's was his beloved son, Absalom. Right? His son, member of his own household. The enemies of God and of David are those who do wickedness unjustly. You get that? Those who do wickedness unjustly. And this being a messianic psalm pointing to Christ, we understand who Christ's enemies were too, right? Who are Christ's enemies? Those of the covenant community, right? Those who were claiming to be believers in Yahweh, right? And Jesus angered them. He angered them because he spoke truth to them. He pointed out their sins. He called them to repentance. And they didn't like that. He faced opposition everywhere he went. His enemies were always around him. But Jesus constantly spoke the truth to them, didn't he? And isn't that loving? Isn't that loving? Are we prepared for that? Are we prepared for that? To call sin, sin. Call evil, evil. Good, good. Even in our own households and congregations and in the broader evangelical community, the Church of America, if you will. So being willing to do God's business, being willing to love our enemies, starts with pleading to God. Do we love the people? Do we love our enemies? To tell them the truth, well, it needs to begin with pleading to God, turning to Him, repenting, changing our minds to conform to Him and His Word, to drive that into our bones deeply. And this psalm, as you're looking at the psalm, Psalm 5, it's a song. It's a song to be sung in worship, played with the flutes, and it starts off like this. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you will hear, you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you. And I will look up. Saying, Lord God, hear me. 
spoken words, right? Both of my spoken words as well as the groanings of my spirit. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditations, the groanings of my spirit. Just like Romans 8, where the spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As the psalmist cries out to his God and King, he knows that the Heavenly Father will hear his child. Just as a father hears the cry of his children and answers them. And so the psalmist begins his day to his father, lifting his voice to his king and his God, his father. And then in his meditations and prayers and his supplications as he's praying, then he looks up. At the end of all that, he looks up for the answer. And when he looks up, he sees the holiness of God. He sees the holiness of God, the character of God, how awesome and mighty and powerful he is. He sees his being. And it is God himself and his holiness that causes the psalmist to say, when I look up to you, I see that you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall you shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God's character, by looking to him and his holiness, causes David and us to think rightly about sin and wickedness. When we look at the character of God, his names, who he is... That causes us to think rightly about sin and wickedness. You just think about the names of God. You know, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah Jireh, right? You think about all those names, and there's a plethora of them. How many are there? Well, when I was at Taylor University, one speaker came in, and unfortunately, Is good. 
people say that? I mean, Rachel Held Evans is one of those people that has done that. When she will, refuses to call sin, sin. God does not delight in evil. God does not delight in wickedness. He takes no pleasure in it. And we dare not call evil good and good evil. We dare not. The psalmist says, nor shall evil dwell with you. Charles Spurgeon says this about that, that particular phrase, nor shall evil dwell with you. Spurgeon says, oh, how foolish are we if we attempt to entertain two guests so hostile to one another as Christ Jesus and the devil. Rest assured, Christ will not live in the parlor, the living room of our hearts, if we entertain the devil in the cellar, the basement of our thoughts. God hates sin. God hates sin. And that sin comes out of people. And look what the text also says. He hates all workers of iniquity. He hates all workers of iniquity. He abhors sins. Look at look at the, the text there and how power, that powerful language is there. He abhors sin and wickedness. Abhorring something isn't a good thing, right? Doesn't mean that he really he's indifferent to it. But he abhors sin and wickedness and those who are bloodthirsty and deceitful. These are words of power. Takes no pleasure. Takes no pleasure. Hates. Abhors. Strong words about sin and sinners. And what kind of sins does our Lord and our God hate and abhor? Well, if you look in the text here, wickedness, evil, glance through the text there, liars, murderers, the deceitful, okay? And we live in a day and a culture that says, just as the serpent said in the garden, has God really said, has God really said that sodomy is wrong? Has God really said that fornication is wrong? Come on, come on, We're, we've learned enough now. We've learned enough. We really know that that's not that big of a deal. Has God really said murder is wrong? I mean, sure, you know, killing an adult or something like that, but, you know, if it's just an object of conception. Has God really said it's wrong to deceive people by calling evil good and good evil? God hates all that. Do you see that? Hates it. Right? He hates all that, abhors that, and we must not be friends with such wickedness. We are Christians. Christ is in us. Just like Spurgeon says, too, wickedness that can't coexist. We must not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. 
but our delight needs to be in the law of the Lord, and we need to meditate on it both day and night. Skip down to verse 9, and we see the characteristic of the wicked. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction, their throat is an open tomb, they flatter with their tongue. You see how destructive their mouths are. You see what the workers of iniquity write and speak. Just in a, our meditation and confession, you know, Greg was bringing up Facebook and Twitter and all of those things. Those are the forums, blogs and things like that. Those are the forums today where we see the mouths of the wicked speaking forth. And when we pay attention to those things and we're absorbing those things like that, without meditating on God's word, there could result a problem. Now we can see where President Obama is wicked in lighting up the White House with the rainbow sign of sodomy and all of those things, which is really ironic if you think about it, because it's talking about destruction. Um, we can see Hillary Clinton affirming sinful lifestyle choices and all of those things. But here is where we need to understand that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the keyboard writes. Right? The overflow of the mouth, or the heart, the pen picks up and writes. When we have professing Christians saying God approves of such, we have a problem. And when such wickedness comes out of people's mouths, wickedness that is not willing to call sin, sin, and evil, evil, it reveals an inward problem. And we need to understand, God's enemies can look so respectable. They can look so respectable. But Scripture also tells us Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light, right? So we need to have that in our mind. They can be so whitewashed on the outside, but what comes out of their mouths? What do they say? Is it in line with God's word? Does it comport with God's word? Do they speak the truth, or do they speak a lie? Do they speak truth, or do they speak a falsehood? Even professing Christians who've listened to the lies of the world can get duped into speaking untruths. You can get bullied into speaking falsely and being fearful of saying what God says. But we can be duped into not believing the truth of God's word. Because we're, there's opposition out there. But what they are saying, he says there, is like an open tomb. It's like an open tomb. What's that like? Well, in the summertime, we have the opportunity in Michigan to go buy dead deer on the road. Right? That have been perhaps rotting there for a day or two or something like that, right? And it smells. Our children were walking along Lake Michigan back a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And there was a dead deer on the side of Lake Michigan, and it reeked, didn't it? 
I mean, it was so powerful. I was probably 200 yards away, and if the wind was blowing rightly, I could smell that. That's how horrible that smell is, right? It's death. It's rotting flesh. That's the image here. If there's one of them, it's bad, but what if there are 10,000 of them? What if there were 10,000 dead carcasses lying out in a field? What would that be like? It would be a disaster. It would be a health hazard. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. That's what he's saying here. That's the picture that he's giving to us. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They're breathing out death. Rottenness. And we need to smell that and be repulsed by it. We need to get away from it. We must not be like a dog, right? Everybody have dogs? You know what dogs like to do, right? You ever have a dog go and roll in a dead carcass and come back all happy? Right? I mean, it is horrible. We should not be like that dog who thinks it's the greatest thing in the world to wallow around in a dead carcass. Because guess what? What happens to us then? What's going to happen? We're going to stay aren't we? It's going to rub off on us. We then see that these wicked flatter with their tongue. They flatter with their tongue. Flattery is not telling the truth. It's covering over sin. And boy, we can all do that, can't we? We can all do that. When do we do this? When do we do this? When we refuse to identify sin or warn people of sin. Warn people of where they are. We cover over their sin for our sake so we don't lose their friendship or so we don't lose a sibling or we don't lose a parent or so we don't look foolish like some fundamentalist or something like that. (laughs) And so we just let it go. sin is? Sin is what God says sin is. And as Christians, we are called to speak God's word, his truth. And to do it in love because we love those who are out there. Because we want to see them converted to Jesus Christ. things about the wicked. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. We are calling God. When we pray this, and we all pray this all the time, right? (laughs) We are calling God just in his pronouncement against sin and those who commit sin. Why? Why? Because they are in rebellion against him. And we love him so much. We love his holiness so much. 
We want to see justice done. Notice the righteousness of the psalmist. Those who have rebelled against you, O Lord, not against us, but against God. And we want justice served. Again, Spurgeon says, we are to forgive our enemies, but it is not in our power to forgive God's enemies. We need to let God do that. We speak God's words against sin. So they have not offended us so much as they have offended God by rebelling against them. That's what we need to keep in mind. When we have reaction against us, if we speak truth to someone, that reaction against us isn't really against us. It's against God. It's against God's holiness. Him. We need to speak prophetically to all the truth and rejoice when the justice of God is achieved and the mercy of God is achieved. And just think of a court case. You know, if a murderer is convicted, we not say, praise the Lord. Right? It may be hard. It may even be someone that we're familiar with. But if justice is served in the court case, then we say, amen. Because justice is served. If we can do that in our courts, our human courts, then we ought also to say that with God's court. But here's where it gets closer to home. And we think, yes, those are bad people out there, but what about here? What about here? Verse 9, we see this, okay? Talked about it already. Their throat is an open tomb. Does that come up in the New Testament? And where, where does that phrase come up in the New Testament again? Remember that from anywhere? Anyone? Right? Comes up in Romans 3. If you remember, this is a context where Paul is saying, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the midst of all of that, their throat is an open disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So who is that? It's all of us. From the cutest one in here, <laughs> to the oldest person here, and I'm not going to draw any attention to who that is. So... Or do you not know that the, un the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, says Paul. And such were some of you and me. 
And are we willing to say, in your justice and righteousness, O Lord, pronounce them guilty, all workers of iniquity, O God. Do that, O Lord, and you will be glorified. We need to understand, in ourselves, we are guilty. And that's the first part of the story. And we need to confess that. We need to own that. We need to understand that we are guilty. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. Right? But what about the second part of the story? There is a second part of the story, and that's the glory of it. That's the grace and mercy of it. So Ephesians 2, 4, we see, But God, being rich in mercy, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And in Psalm 5, the hinge pen is in verses 7 and 8. And we have that adversative again there, that contrast. But, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, See what he's saying there? I will come into your house, O Lord, but not in my own power. Look there. Not in my own power, but in the multitude of your mercy. Because I know I'm guilty. I know my throat is an open tomb. But you have been merciful. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. He wants the righteousness of Christ given to him. He wants that righteousness of the Lord God to fall upon him. Make your way straight before my face. You see, the difference between the wicked and the righteous is the trust of the righteous. The trust of the righteous. Where they are looking to, it is in God's tender mercies. It's in his path, in his righteousness, not our own. Because if we're relying on our own, it's all filthy rags. And we need to confess that truth daily, trusting in the strength of the Lord. And it's so easy for us to fall into sin and sinful thoughts and unbiblical thinking, and we need to be constantly returning to the Lord God. To be constant in prayer to Him, to rest in His finished work, Christ's finished work on the cross for us. And that's where we need to cry out to, the, to our Lord and God in the morning, to look up to Him, to see Him and His character. astray. They want to pull us down. They want to pull us into their tombs of death. They're like zombies. They want to bring us in to their destruction. They rejoice when that happens. We, we had to excommunicate a young lady in our church just this past year. And all that she, the people that were feeding her all the lies of the world were rejoicing you should have seen the Facebook post. They were rejoicing that she had managed to get 
such a church such as she was. They want to bring us, they want to see Christians fall. They want us, want us to assent to their wickedness. They want us to agree in their wickedness. But we need to rely on God's righteousness and His straight paths before our face to speak His word as authoritative in all of life and practice. We need to be so cautious. Have you ever heard the saying, we are what we eat? We are what we eat, right? You've heard that? Okay. So, what are you consuming? What are we consuming? What are we consuming of the world? Through Facebook, Twitter, movies, music, talk radio, NPR, and all the other media outlets that are out there that are at enmity with God. What are we consuming? Are we going to be like them? Where's your worldview being shaped? Is it being shaped by the enemies of God or is it being shaped by God's word? Is God's word what we meditate on? We have, in order to meditate on it, we have to know it. We have to read it. We have to memorize it. We have to drive it into us. It needs to be like honey to us. The enemy's throat is open too. But those who are in Christ, who are Christians, we repent. And we need to repent and rejoice who put their trust in you, O Lord. Let your people ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. God will protect us. He will surround us with a shield of faith that even if we die again, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. But we do fear, don't we? But we, we need to remember that we have nothing to fear. Be joyful in Him. Love His name. And all the characteristics of God's name. He is righteous and true and wonderful. He's the counselor. He's almighty. He's just, true, holy. Delight yourself in these things and you will be joyful because you will see the character and the holiness of God and who He is. And that ought to drive us to humility. That ought to drive us to our knees. That ought to drive us to rest in Him and to, to, as we see what's going on in the lives of the people around us, we can come to Him. Here's what we're to do. Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, You are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Leave God to righteously hate all the workers of iniquity. Let His justice be done and love that. Love is justice. Hate and abhor wickedness and unrighteousness. And when those who are doing those things that as well. Do so, though, in all humility. Do so in all humility, knowing that such were some of you. Love them enough to do what Christ did. What did he do? Well, like with Lazarus, he drug him out of the grave. Right? Drag them out of the grave. Speak forth the truth to them. 
us. We ought to do that with others. Love them enough not to flatter with our tongues when wickedness is going on and lies come forth from mouth. Speak the truth. Be truth bearers. While you can hate those who do wickedly, do it in the way that Jesus tells us to do it. With a concern for them. Abhor the wickedness. Abhor what that rebellion stands for. Hate it in yourself as well. Not just in others, but hate it in yourself as well. And love those who are doing those things enough to give them the truth. And man, that seems like such a paradox, doesn't it? It seems like such a paradox. But like God judges the hearts. While we remember that we were children of wrath, we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were children of wrath, children of the devil, filled by sin, abhorred by God, yet paradoxically, he loved us by sending forth his son. And Jesus solves that paradox because those who are in him, through his death and resurrection, have become as righteous as him. As righteous as Christ because we are in him. And you know what? That's what the Father sees. That's what the Father sees. That ought to bring us to such humility. Such humility. Where we're not afraid of the world. We're not afraid of their darks. And we can rest in the multitude of mercies of God. Most clearly seen, really at the cross. Really clearly seen at the cross. And we have the table that signifies this every week for us. Now that's the good news. That shows us the good news of what Christ has done. That Christ has died for us. Now, we're to imitate him. And so we need to be willing to die for others in order to speak the truth. And to do so without fear. How many times has Jesus been saying, do not fear. Do not have to fear when we're resting in him and when we're looking to him. So, a lot there. <laughs> a lot there. It's a psalm that, that we really need to meditate on. It's a psalm to meditate on. Meditate on it. You know, the, the tough psalms, those are hard for us in our day. And that's why we need to hear them. And we need to absorb them and meditate on them. We need to meditate on the tough sayings of Scripture, the tough sayings of Christ. And we need to understand our own frame. We need to understand our own frame, what we can be led into so that we can always be repenting and coming back. We do not want to walk and stand and sit with the unrighteous and the wicked when we're listening and getting comfortable with all of those things. So let us rejoice. The hope is to look to Christ and Him alone.
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.